Welcome to the Youth and Policy Podcast. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan institute utilizing discourse to redefine the way youth interacts with policy. The institute welcomes diversity, discourse, innovation, and education to achieve this goal. Thank you for supporting the Institute for Youth and Policy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Youth and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Stiki. And I'm your host, Kate McLaughlin. So for our first topic today, we are going to be discussing the House voted to approve a $3.5 trillion budget resolution, advance a bipartisan infrastructure bill, and move forward with sweeping voting rights legislation. After centrists threatened to derail Democrats' economic agenda by pushing for swift approval of the Senate-passed infrastructure plan, party leaders pledged to vote on it by September 27th. Democrats are trying to pass this bill to expand the social safety net without a single vote from Republicans who oppose the spending and the proposed tax increases on the wealthy to pay for it. Democrats had to use a procedural workaround in order, in order to avoid a lengthy battle and a separate vote on the budget resolution itself. And the rift between Democrats on how far Congress should go in reshaping the role of the federal government is still unresolved. So, Kate, do you want to get us started? Yeah, well, to start with, I'm really glad that um, the House was able to come to this budget resolution because um, it just means that this process is going to be moving along. um, And this is a bill that I think is very important. Um, But to focus a little bit on how the Democrats were able to get um, these votes, um, you had mentioned, Dan, that the Democrats had to use this procedural workaround um, to get what they wanted. And I think that that is... um, Uh, it shows how politics are being used right now and how it is what Washington is like right now. The fact that in order to get this bill passed, they basically just followed these like really small, like Nikki rules um, in order to get it as opposed to actually like getting people to hear their opinion and getting maybe some Republicans to uh, switch sides and vote differently than some of their other colleagues. And that is really disappointing to see. This is a bill that's supposed to show um, the American people how the representatives are going to listen to them and be there for them and help them. But the way that they got this um, to pass is really disappointing. They were just it was, it was the vote was on party lines, meaning it's it's not um, a bipartisan bill, and it, it's just kind of disappointing that they had to use that procedural workaround. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to see how hard the progressives in Congress are fighting for this, because we saw progressive Democrats give up in the past when it came to things like the fifteen dollar minimum wage and the entire force the vote situation. Um, It's also really encouraging to see progressive Democrats doing what the Biden administration should be doing, which is releasing TV ads against conservative Democrats. Uh, If you guys didn't know, the House Progressive Caucus actually released a negative TV ads about the nine conservative Democrats in the House who want to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, first, essentially alleging that they're disrupting Biden's agenda. Now, at the beginning of their term, uh, Kamala Harris went to West Virginia and did a TV interview criticizing Joe Manchin for being uncooperative in regard to the American Rescue Plan. But ever since that interview, the Biden administration has been trying to uh, win over conservative Democrats with diplomacy, i.e. Manchin and cinema. Now, the other surprising part of the story is that Nancy Pelosi actually sided with the progressives on this reconciliation bill. She and Biden have been adamant about passing the budget resolution, the $3.5 trillion bill, alongside the smaller $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
Um, however, even though leadership has sided with the progressives, um, the left flank is going to need to hold. And the reason I say that is because there was a potential poison pill that was slipped into the negotiations in order to get the nine conservative Democrats to vote for this bill. Nancy Pelosi was driving a hard bargain on this, and she agreed to turn over some of the negotiating to Representative DeFazio because DeFazio is a very close Pelosi ally and will essentially do whatever she wants. So as a token gesture to relinquish some power over these negotiations, she handed it over to Representative DeFazio. Now, the thing we need to remember is that corporate Democrats want to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill first. Why? So that they can pass that bill first and they can turn around and kill the $3.5 trillion budget resolution by saying, well, we already passed uh, an infrastructure bill. We have no need for uh, such a huge spending bill um, when there's already so much inflation and we're already so much in debt. Now, uh, Pelosi and DeFazio made an agreement with these conservative Democrats in order to get them to um, send this $3.5 trillion uh, budget resolution to the Senate. And that agreement was that they have to at least vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill by September 27th. Now, there's two ways to look at it. It now either gives the House, uh, the, Dem the Democratic House conservatives or House corporatists leverage to delay the reconciliation process and ask for absurd things to essentially stonewall the bill so that when September 27th comes, they can say, uh, oopsies, we couldn't pass the reconciliation bill and now we have to vote on the bipartisan bill because that's what you promised. The other way of looking at it is, and this actually becomes, uh, this actually comes from a reporter, Jake Sherman, the language in the deal actually says they only have to consider the infrastructure bill by the 27th, which means they just have to start the process and they can change the terms of the deal by adding new language. Now, there's also a secret option. The Speaker of the House has the power to implement something called the timeout authority, meaning she can unilaterally postpone the date if she wants. This rule was created for emergencies, but like any rule, it can be used whenever the majority wants it to be used. Um, so my hope is that Pelosi is really in agreement with Biden and is leaning towards option two or even three, and that the September 27th deadline is just a token gesture to get the corporatists back in line. Uh, yeah, I know um, Representative uh, Stephanie Murphy of Florida um, released an op-ed earlier this week and where she was criticizing Democratic leaders for linking the two bills. Um, and she said that it was a uh, poor legislative strategy. And um, I'm looking at the quote now. She says, I cannot in good conscience vote to start the reconciliation process unless we also finish our work on the infrastructure bill. Um, and I have not always agreed with Representative Murphy. I think that uh, uh, she tends to be a little more conservative than I am. Um, but I, part of me does agree with her. Like I, I, I think that we need to do like what's best and what encompasses all American people. Um, and the reconciliation process um, is going to be a great bill for the American people. And we just need to make sure that both bills are done with that in mind. Yeah. Um, another part that I wanted to like kind of emphasize, because it is kind of like confusing when you see the headline that the House passed this bill, but this bill isn't final yet, right? This this passage in the House just started the reconciliation process. So now this bill is going to go to the Senate and it's going to go through a bunch of committees. And these committees are going to uh, renegotiate the entire package. And most likely lots of the provisions in the original bill are going to be stripped out. 
Um, and there are a lot of great things um, in the original $3.5 trillion bill, such as extending the child tax credits, universal pre-K, uh, paid family medical leave, free community college, lowering prescription drug costs, adding dental, vision, and hearing to Medicare, lowering the Medicare age to 60, affordable housing, elder care, a pathway to citizenship for illegal immigrants, expanding Obamacare, and billions of dollars to fight climate change. Now, the provisions that are most likely to be stripped out based on um, prior knowledge and just observation of how the Senate works is the provisions regarding um, immigration, and I think also the prescriptions around um, Medicare, because healthcare is a huge issue among the Democratic caucus. You know, some believe in a public option, some believe in um, universal healthcare, similar to uh, European welfare states. But immigration seems like the most likely part of this bill to be stripped out, which is really sad because. As we know, the Democrats have adopted this policy of listening to the Senate parliamentarian. And what the Senate par parliamentarian essentially does is she rules um, what can be um, put in a reconciliation bill, because a reconciliation bill is a special maneuver that um, senators use to be able to pass bills without needing the uh, 60 votes for a filibuster. They do it in order to break the filibuster. And essentially anything in a reconciliation bill has to pertain to the budget. So if the Senate parliamentarian rules that, uh, you know, granting a pathway to citizenship for, um, you know, dreamers, for immigrants, it does not affect the budget, then they cannot include that in the bill. Now, the other interesting thing here is that the progressives have drawn a red line in the sand. They have said that they won't vote for either bill if any of the climate, uh, if any of the climate provisions are stripped out. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see because, uh, you know, Joe Manchin is a huge advocate for, um, you know, fracking and the entire coal mining industry. And I he leads one of the committees that will be evaluating this bill. So the fight over the climate provisions is going to be very interesting to see. And another interesting part of the story was that Pelosi whipped the conservative Dems into voting for this bill by essentially she said, we're going to withdraw funding for your next reelection campaign if you don't vote for this bill, because as the Speaker of the House, she is the most powerful person in Congress. She controls the DCCC, which is essentially um, the agency that um, provides funding to all uh, you know, congressional Democrats to fund their reelection campaigns. I mean, she's been fighting really hard on this. And she's essentially said that, like, if you don't cooperate with us, if you don't vote for this bill, we are going to take away your funding and we will not endorse you. And so I really was glad to see her take that, uh, you know, hard line approach and be able to whip the conservative Democrats into place in a way that um, President Biden and even Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer haven't been able to do. They haven't threatened Manchin or Cinema's committee positions. They haven't threatened to uh, not endorse them. They've just they've been trying to play this game of diplomacy and essentially succumbing to all of their needs. So I, I hope that Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden take a page out of Nancy Pelosi's book and start playing hardball with some of these conservative Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I think like these bills are so important um, to the future of America that I think that's really the only way that um, you can go. Like it, it is so important. Every string needs to be pulled. You need like like you said, um, you just need to play hardball because like America and Americans need these two bills.
I think we can switch topics um, quickly. We're taking a look at Biden's approval rating this week um, is at a record low. Uh, President Biden's approval rating has dropped under 50% for the first time in his presidency. Right now, his approval rating is at 41% um, due to the media narrative around the withdrawal from Afghanistan. From Afghanistan. About 50% of voters trust Biden to handle the pandemic and 39% trust him to handle the economy. Approval rating is about more than just Afghanistan right now. His current numbers are also in conjunction with concerns of the Delta variant rise and the economic fallout in association with both COVID and Afghanistan. What to expect in the next few weeks? Biden's approval rating might not, might not bounce back just yet, given how volatile the situation is in Afghanistan. But at the same time, there is reason to believe it eventually will. Dan, do you want to start this conversation? Yeah, sure. I think um, the main thing that is hurting Biden's approval rating right now is just the media narrative. I mean, the media is has been killing him for the past two weeks over Afghanistan. There is a massive disconnect between people saying they want to get out of Afghanistan and then criticizing Biden for getting out of Afghanistan. You know, we saw the flip side of media narratives in the Democratic primary when it became clear that it was either going to be Bernie or Biden. Every other Democrat dropped out of the race and endorsed Biden and the media um, for several weeks killed Sanders, uh, saying that he supported Hugo Chavez. Uh, You know, he supports Fidel Castro. He's a dictatorial communist, universal health care. It's going to take away your doctor. And what that did was uh, the media was successfully able to manufacture consent to give Joe Biden the nomination. Now we have the the opposite scenario when Joe Biden actually does the right thing. And the media viciously attacks him because they are in the pockets of defense contractors, weapons manufacturers, and intelligence agencies like the CIA, Pentagon, and the military-industrial complex. Look, the media has been doing uh, nonstop deep dives on and interviews with people who have been harmed by the Taliban. And those stories are true and horrific. But the media hasn't done uh, the same kind of investigative journalism for Afghans who have been harmed by the U.S. You know, the Afghanistan papers which came out a couple of years ago, revealed that soldiers on the ground, American troops who were in the ground, had no idea of what they were doing in Afghanistan, right? Because a lot of the uh, duties of soldiers in Afghanistan was literally just um, protecting poppy fields. And I mean, if you look at um, for the past couple of years, or no, the past couple of decades, what we've been doing in Afghanistan, there have been over, I think, over 7,000 Afghans killed by uh, U.S. airstrikes as civilian casualties. But you never see the media uh, talking about these things. You never see the media talking about the devastating effects of the American troops on Afghan citizens. You, on- you only see them talking about what the Taliban has done to Afghan citizens. So I think the entire media, nar- the media narrative is the main thing that's killing him right now. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's really important to say is in such a time of polarizing politics, um, identity politics, um, the role that media plays in politics and politicians and and how they're received, seeing such a shift is a really big swing. Um, The way that media plays into um, the way that politicians are, are perceived, at least over the past five years, because it has been so polarizing, there has not been a huge drastic uh, switch. People fall so in love with their president or whoever they voted for um, to the point where they, no matter what they do, you, you can't see the wrong. So we saw this with President Trump. Um, people loved him so much and his, his supporters supported him so staunchly um, that even when 
America was having an economic follow in a public health crisis, a lot of people did not recognize that. Um, this has happened with other presidents before. However, it is really crazy, for lack of a better word, to see such a shift. We're seeing a 10-point shift in um, Biden's uh, popularity. Um, that's a really big swing. Um, I want to focus a little bit on what to expect for what his approval rating um, could look like in the in the near future. Um, Jeffrey Skelly wrote on 538 on, uh, yesterday when he was writing about uh, Joe Biden's approval rating um, about how uh, it's going to bounce back and what, what the next couple weeks are going to look like for Joe Biden's numbers. So Biden's approval rating, like I said, might not bounce back just yet um, because of the situation in Afghanistan and the media's portrayal of that. Um, but there is reason to believe that it eventually will. Um, he explained that because polls conducted amid a high profile, high profile event often show large shifts in opinions that then fade over time. Um, so his numbers may drop slightly more before they bounce back as the final withdrawal of American troops is set for next week. And that could go already given how precarious the situation is in Afghanistan. So just to reiterate what um, Jeffrey Skelly said, there's going to be a small uh, decline in popularity over the next week or so, maybe maybe two weeks, um, as the, the situation um, in Afghanistan prevails. Um, but there is reason to believe that it will um, go back up. But I also want to focus on um, how it really, it's, it's more than just um, the media's portrayal of him in Afghanistan right now, um, because his numbers had been dropping due to the rise of the Delta variant. Um, in the last week of July, his numbers fell three points. He had a 60% approval rating um, in regards to his pandemic response. And in the last week, they dropped to 57. So obviously, that is a small shift, not at all like what we're seeing now, but it was declining. Um, and initially, Americans uh, overwhelmingly supported Biden's decision in April to withdraw the remaining U.S. military forces from the country. Even now, there are more in favor of leaving than staying. But most Americans think Biden has handled the withdrawal poorly. Uh, last weekend, uh, CBS News uh, survey found that three in four Americans felt the withdrawal was going very or somewhat badly. So just to reiterate um, what I opened with, his uh, numbers dropping in Afghanistan are in conjunction with, um, with COVID numbers in, in the current public health crisis. Um, and they had already been declining, been declining, but Afghanistan and the situation going on there certainly fueled uh, his decline. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the economy and the COVID-19 pandemic, the rise of the Delta variant, because those are the two other big factors that have been uh, killing his approval rating. Now, after Joe Biden passed the American Rescue Plan, before the Delta variant came to prominence, he was enjoying a kind of... Um, honeymoon, right? I mean, he had just been elected president. He had just given out uh, $2,000 stimulus checks to everyone. The unemployment benefits were extremely generous, like better than other comparable European nations, which is really insane for the United States to be doing based on our history. So he was kind of in this honeymoon phase where um, people were getting stimulus checks. You know, there was a pause on student loan debt payments, which there still is, but it's set to expire at the end of the year, you know. Um, but I think the reason why you now see his approval rating going down is because, again, like I mentioned, stimulus checks aren't being sent out. Um, most of the states have canceled the extended unemployment benefits that they were given by the federal government to give to people during the pandemic. And now a lot of people are forced to go back to work 
And especially touching on the work part, like a lot of people really enjoyed um, working from home, you know, not having to get up, go to the office and work these um, like meaningless, meaningless, menial, repetitive jobs, because um, from their perspective, if they had to work these meaningless, repetitive jobs, they'd rather just um, do it from home than like actually have to get up and go to the office and work these jobs. And a lot of people, uh, not just like the middle class, but especially the working class have been forced to take uh, these uh, minimum wage jobs because the unemployment benefits have been cut off. So you now have a situation where millions of people are forced to go back to uh, like jobs in the service industry, for example, where they, I mean, they're treated horribly. They get paid like the, even a $15 minimum wage in places like New York and California isn't, is, is not enough to uh, survive. So you have people forced to go back to these meaningless, repetitive jobs in the uh, service industry, in retail, whatever it may be, where they're forced to deal with angry customers all day and are put through horrible working conditions. So that is another um, big factor as to why his approval rating has uh, been shot down the past couple months. As far as how it could um, improve in the future, I think we're going to have to see what happens with the uh, the new uh, $3.5 trillion budget resolution. Obviously, you know, free pre-K, free community college, extension of the child tax credits, all of those things, uh, you know, expansion of Medicare too, expansion of Obamacare, potentially providing a public option. All of those things are things that will greatly help the working class and that could really boost his approval rating and get him back to where he was. Yeah, I mean, j- just to add on to what you were saying, I think, not for nothing, but I, I liked how you said the the honeymoon period for a long time up until really now, Biden was really just coasting along in the post Trump era. He was getting a lot of um, popularity and had high approval ratings. I think for a, a big part of it was because he just wasn't Trump and people were excited to see um, his, his social media or his tweets or his press conferences being so um, so different to Trump. And I think he was, he was, like I said, coasting along for the first couple months, just being kind of anti-Trump being the opposite of what so many people, uh, what, what we saw and what so many people wanted. And, um, I think now it's kind of like you said, the honeymoon period, it's kind of setting in. Like now we have four more years left of his presidency about, and we can't just keep on going saying like, well, at least he's not Trump. We, we could, we could have celebrated that for a while, Um, but now we're at the point where it's like, you're the president, we have major issues going on, start acting like it. We can't just keep on being excited because you're, at least you're not someone else. I mean, yeah, Donald Trump just gave Joe Biden so many easy dunks at the start of his presidency. Mm -hmm. I believe the first week of his presidency, Joe Biden had something like a 65% approval rating because he got to issue so many executive orders that were just like basic common sense thing that things that everyone supports, like rejoining the World Health Organization, uh, you know, setting uh, national and federal mask mandates. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, a big part of why his approval rating was so high was because, like you said, he just wasn't Trump. And it was a big deal for for a lot of Americans, especially like older liberals, to see that there was a president who was actually, uh, you know, listening to the science and not going off and golfing every day, who's actually taking the pandemic seriously and actually trying to pass legislation in Congress. Yeah, I think it's 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 time now to uh, start start judging Biden the same way that we were judging Trump. 
we can move on to the next topic. So yesterday, the Texas House of Representatives passed a sweeping elections bill that would prohibit 24-hour and drive-through voting, block election officials from sending out absentee ballot applications, set new restrictions on providing assistance to voters, impose new identification requirements on mail-in ballots, and give more leeway to partisan poll watchers at voting sites. Now, Texas Democrats previously fled the state famously to delay the bill from being passed, but now it seems time has finally run out and this bill will advance to the Senate where it will be later signed by Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, So, Kate, do you want to get us started? Yeah, I, I think seeing this bill pass was a really dark thing because it's putting into place um, even even more extreme than it had, than we have already seen in a state like Texas and other states um, in the South, voter suppression, which is so anti everything America. It's absolutely fighting against everything that so many people, particularly people in those states, people that support bills like this passing, claim to be. Um, it's it is so classist it is racist it is actively hurting minority groups in these areas that are forced to work longer hours or have do not have transportation because of systemic racism and classism that has already been put into place and this is just taking away their votes and it's it's selfish of those representatives and it is it's sick yeah, um, I mean, these voter suppression bills are really the new Jim Crow. And when you say that, a lot of people will become instantly reactionary and say it can't possibly be that bad. But a lot of people don't know the Civil Rights Act was pa- passed in 1965. Everyone knows that. But African-Americans technically under the law have had the right to vote since, uh, I believe, the original amendments after the Civil War. It was just that there were so many restrictions placed on African-Americans, such as, you know, poll taxes, uh, you know, the grandfather clause. If your grandparent hadn't voted, then you couldn't vote. And then you were they were forced to take like literacy tests and so many, um, you know, different provisions that were basically intended to uh, prevent minorities, prevent uneducated people and especially prevent African-Americans from voting. And today, I mean, we are seeing the GOP literally do the same thing that conservative Democrats back in the 60s did, which was, um, you know, try to prevent African-Americans from voting, not because not necessarily because they're just outright racist, because they're trying to rig the election in their favor, because when working class people, uh, when minorities, when African-Americans vote, they overwhelmingly vote Democrat. And another thing that was um, interesting, I watched um, like a, some clips on Twitter of some of the debates in the tech. I don't know if it was Texas, but it was one state's legislator where they were uh, debating a bill being passed. And one of the uh, Republican representatives literally said, um, well, we need to pass this bill because we need to um, preserve the integrity of the ballot box. Now, that phrase protecting the integrity of the ballot box was a famous phrase used during the civil rights movement to oppose the civil rights act because what they mean when they say protect the integrity of the ballot box they mean they don't want poor people they don't want african-americans they don't want minorities they don't want anyone who they deem undesirable 
voting. And so they want to protect the integrity of the ballot box. So we really do have a crisis on our hands. I mean, if you look at the states that have um, passed voter suppression bills, um, I think it's over like 20 or over 25, Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Montana, New Hampshire, Nevada, Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, Wyoming. So if we don't pass national voting rights protections, our democracy is essentially doomed. Now, Senators uh, Manchin and Cinema have, they they did agree to vote on the For the People Act, but they like they took out a lot of the like useful provisions. So it is going to be interesting to see because I know that the House, they um, set up a procedural vote for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is kind of like the For the People Act, except it has way less provisions. And it does have the support of all 50 Democrats, but obviously you know, there, there's no chance that they will ever get 10 Republicans to vote for a bill like that, because that would jeopardize those 10 Republicans ability to win elections. So it is going to be interesting to see if the filibuster is maybe altered, or I doubt it'll be abolished. But maybe if we were to go back to the talking filibuster, that could still be a possibility. Yeah, I mean, proponents of the of this bill are still arguing and echoing the absolute baseless claims that former President Trump made of election fraud. Um, and it is it, it it's just so crazy to see how has President Trump, who made these absolute baseless claims, now hiding away in Florida with with no social media, no way to spread his message and the baseless claims that he made starting like a year ago, even before a year ago, are still having such extreme effects. They're still um, being seen debated on House floors. They're being put into bills. How is that possible? We need to put the power back in the people and the people who are representing us to leave Trump and the Trump era behind. And they need to continue advocating for voting rights that use false specter of voter fraud to create hurdles that undermine the right to vote, particularly for voters of color. Um, the Texas bill restricts you know, methods of voting. It tightens the rules um, around mail ballots. It empowers partisan poll watchers and it creates new rules and penalties for mistakes by election officials and people helping other votes. I just don't know how something like that could possibly be passed in a state that is has a stereotype of being like the most patriotic. Yeah, I mean, when a lot of people think of Southern states, they assume that, you know, all Southern states are full of like, uh, you know, these white um, Republicans, conservative Republicans. But I mean, in a state like Texas, there are a lot of African-Americans and BIPOC people. Like people tend to assume that, you know, states like Texas and, uh, like states like Florida are overwhelmingly conservative because you see, you know, people like Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Greg Abbott. But there are a lot of BIPOC and African-American people um, in those states and in those communities who don't uh, support those politicians, but their votes are suppressed. I mean, the entire um, um, the entire purpose of these voting restrictions and these voting laws, not just these more recent ones since the 2020 election, but all voter restriction bills is to prevent working class and poor people from voting. You know, there are several um, propositions that Democrats have tried to propose, like making Election Day a national holiday, um, you know, having two weeks absentee early voting. And I mean, these provisions are literally just common sense, because right now we have a system where Election Day is one day. Like, what if you have to work that day? 
what if you, um, you know, you have kids, you have to pick them up from daycare and then you have to take care of them for the rest of the day. What if you have a medical emergency? What if you have to go to work? I mean, there are just so many uh, different things that can happen to you that can cause a person not to be able to vote. And we know that um, the majority of the things that I just mentioned only apply to working class people, because oftentimes a lot of middle class people and upper middle class people can take days off or, you know, hire a babysitter or do whatever they need and be able to vote. And that's the entire purpose of these laws is preventing poor people and working class people from voting. Now, going back to the voter fraud thing, I mean, the big lie has just been poisonous. It has essentially taken over the entire Republican Party. I mean, there there was literally zero evidence of fraud during the 2020 election. It was struck down in, I think, over hundreds of court cases. I don't remember how many court cases it was, but I think they only won one or two. And even those were like faulty at best. So, I mean, voter fraud is essentially a made-up thing. The entire um, justification behind Republican uh, legislators passing these kind of bills is uh, voter fraud. And they are playing off the big lie that Donald Trump perpetuated in the 2020 election. I mean, there have been several um, nonpartisan and even partisan think tanks that have done uh, surveys and have done research. I mean, if you even look at the, you know, the Maricopa recount, the recount in Arizona, a state where Joe Biden won, um, to try and determine if there was any voter fraud. And they overwhelmingly found that the amount of voter fraud that happened in a state was like 39 people out of like, what, like tens of millions of people who voted. It was nothing. And the majority of people who were found to have committed voter fraud actually committed voter fraud by voting twice for Donald Trump because Donald yeah. Trump told them that the election was going to be rigged and it was going to be stolen. So it's just, it's, it's really insane to see. Yeah, I mean, politicians at all levels of government have repeatedly made these false claims of voter fraud, um, but there has been extensive research in court cases that have revealed that fraud is very rare, voter impersonation is virtually non-existent, and many instances of voter fraud are mistakes made by ballot workers or administrators. The same is true for mail-in ballots, which are secure and essential to holding, you know, safe and fair elections. I mean, Donald Trump, made all these claims of mail-in ballots being fraud, but he voted by mail. He voted by mail. All of the people, all of his minions by his side, by his side, they all voted by mail too. They're just trying to pursue a narrative to limit the voices of the unheard. And and it, it cannot we, we cannot continue this way for the future of America. We need to hear all voices. We need everybody to have an equal opportunity. And if that means that a representative loses their position, it's probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, one last thing I wanted to touch on is the debate over voter ID has been a huge one when it comes to um, voting restriction laws. Now, when a lot of people hear about voter ID, there have been polls done saying that, oh, you know, it's common sense, 81% of people um, support that, you know, you should have to show an ID to vote. And there's been no Democrat in Congress that has ever said that they don't want voter ID. When a lot of people hear headlines like that, it's because they fail to understand the complexities of the election system, right? When you register to vote, you have to pre-register to vote online and you have to give them information such as your social security number and proof of citizenship. You must be a citizen to vote. Even if you're a green card holder and you're paying taxes, you cannot vote unless you are a citizen. 
So the entire concept of, you know, requiring voter ID at the polls is just an extra layer of security um, that will disproportionately harm, you know, poor people and minorities. And the reason for that is because it costs money for a lot of people to get things like a driver's license or a passport or, you know, whatever it may be. Like, do you think that, um, you know, like poor people and minorities are going to have like a passport? Some of them do, but uh, a disproportionate amount of them don't. They don't have access to, you know, physical, um, you know, physical proof of ID, but they can still pre-register to vote and give their information online. So the entire concept of, uh, you know, requiring voter ID at the polls is just another uh, added layer of security, which is really not even security. It's just designed to prevent poor people from voting. Yeah, I mean, re- requiring voter ID is assuming that everybody has an address to begin with, which is taking away poor people and homeless people's votes. It's assuming that everybody has a form of transportation to their city or town hall or wherever the voter ID registration, where they actually get the physical voter ID would be. It's assuming that everybody has the money to pay for the fees. It is just discrimination and it, it can't continue. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to continue supporting us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram page at YIP Institute. If you'd like to see more from me, follow me on TikTok at Political Dan, where I cover the latest news stories right after they release. If you'd like to see more from me, follow me on Instagram at KateMCL16. You can also check out our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload a new episode every week.